Hi, my name is Lauren Zayu, and we're back for the second season of Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered, the show about what you say and how you say it. We'll be chronicling the first 100 days of the Biden-Harris administration on everything from immigration to HBCUs. So join me for a crash course on this country's politics, current events, and how we move forward. Hello and welcome to Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered. I'm your host, Lauren Zayu. We all know how important addressing climate change is for the future of not just our country, but our world. Our guest today has been working in the environmental space for years, and I'm glad she's with us to share her wisdom and perspective. Today, I'm excited to have a conversation with Candace Perry, an environmentalist and director of Stormwater at New Jersey Future. Candace directs New Jersey Futures programs, projects, and strategies to improve stormwater management, including those aimed at moving green stormwater infrastructure practices into the mainstream and projects to cultivate the use of stormwater utilities to equitably fund upgrades. Prior to joining New Jersey Future, Candace worked on brownfield redevelopment at the City of Camden Redevelopment Agency. Candace holds a master's degree in environmental studies with a concentration in environmental policy from the University of Pennsylvania and a BS in environmental science from Spelman College. Candace is a graduate of the Environmental Leadership Program and Diverse Force on Boards Program at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm excited to welcome to Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered, Candace Perry. Hi, Candice. Hey, hey, Lauren. It's good to be here with you. Great to be here with you, too. Um, if you just want to kind of kick us off with a bit about what you do and how you got there. Yeah, I'm sure. So again, I'm Candice. I am an environmentalist, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, but I currently live in Philadelphia. And I work for a nonpartisan nonprofit organization based in Trenton, New Jersey, uh, called New Jersey Future which promotes strong, healthy, resilient communities for everyone. And we do that through policy development and state level advocacy, original research, all around land use topics, such as affordable housing, uh, downtown redevelopment, climate change, infrastructure, transportation, you name it. Um, so I am the director of stormwater at New Jersey Future. And so what that basically means is I, work on policy and programs related to sustainable stormwater management. Let me just spend about 60 seconds to break it down. Uh, there's three types of water, drinking water, the water you drink, wastewater, the water that flushes down the drain or from the toilet, and stormwater. So stormwater is the water that falls from the sky and hits impervious or hard surfaces like streets and sidewalks and rooftops and then runs off of those hard surfaces, carrying all of the pollution and the animal waste and the, and the, um, the oil from cars directly into the storm sewer, which outfalls into people's basements and into bodies of water where we get our drinking water sources from. So we at New Jersey Future advocate for sustainable ways to manage uh, stormwater with green stormwater infrastructure, which essentially allows the water to uh, infiltrate or to soak into the ground the way that it would in a forest. If you think about a forest that doesn't have any development, water just falls and it soaks into the ground and it feeds the plants. We want to mimic that in our built environment and create rain gardens and other types of practices that allow the water to just soak in instead of running off. So that's typically what I do at New Jersey Future. And um, let me just say at this point, moving forward, 
all thoughts and opinions will be of my own, but shout out to all of my wonderful colleagues at New Jersey Future, really doing some game-changing work to create safe and healthy communities for New Jersey. That's amazing. Um, it sounds really important. And so you called yourself an environmentalist. Um, and I've been hearing, so I've, I feel like the environmental space has a lot of different phrases and buzzwords. And so environmentalism is one, but I've also been hearing about climate justice a lot lately. And so how mm -hmm. do those uh, go together if they go together? Um, and what uh, is there an intersection that we should know about? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm glad you raised it. I'm happy to break it down because I think especially if you're not in the environmental field, it can just feel like all these words, what do they mean and what is justice? So yeah, let's start from the beginning. Um, if you think about environmentalism, there's a lot of different topics and categories and subcategories. It can look different for different people depending on the work. So I'll give you a couple of examples. You can think of environmentalism as deforestation. So um, tearing down trees in the Amazon rainforest and then the loss of habitat for all of the animals that depend on that forest. So it's you know, protecting and conserving uh, forest and um, protecting and conserving endangered species. You can also think about it as conserving open, open space. So our natural lands, our natural parks, um, also protecting soil health and water quality from contaminants that might be leaching out and polluting those natural resources. So an example would be uh, lead exposure within drinking water. So you think of Flint, Michigan and also Newark, New Jersey. Also there's waste management. You could think about reducing waste that ends up in the landfill and reducing waste consumption by recycling materials. People know of the Great Pacific garbage patch where there's so many thousands and thousands of pounds of plastic and just trash in the Pacific Ocean. And there's many, many more ways to describe environmentalism. You know, a field within environmentalism that acts as a subset, but then also kind of an overarching lens is climate change. So, you know, climate change is a term to represent the effect of the unfettered release of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and society's addiction to fossil fuels and how that's making our planet be hotter and drier and wetter um, year after year after year. And we know that there's so many negative effects to climate change. And um, because of that, there's increasing intensity and frequency of heavy rain events and drought conditions and melting of the ice caps. Um, so now climate justice is just a term to position climate change and all of the negative effects as a public health issue, you know, as a social justice issue. Um, so it, it's a way to think of climate change, not just about our relationship with fossil fuels and greenhouse gas emissions, but centering people and the effects that climate change has on people in the conversation. So it's a, it's a social justice movement. I appreciate you giving it that lens because that, that makes more sense. And I think as someone who's invested in like the people side of policy, right? Like that's what I want to, I guess, promote or spend my most time on. And as we transition into hold up, I know that you and I had a conversation previously about how storm water directly 
impacts people's lives and everything from transportation to the way our neighborhoods are developed. And so um, I would like to spend this segment talking a bit about that. Yeah, um, so I gave a little bit of flavor of what you know stormwater is and how it works, but you know, just kind of think about stormwater falling from the sky. And with climate change, you have these increases of day-to-day -day storm events. So especially within the Northeast region, the amount of rain events that we're having has increased uh, over the last 60 years by about 70%. And that's huge, that's greater than any other region in our country. So in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic, we're getting so much rain. And it's not just about the next Hurricane Harvey or Katrina, it's about those day-to-day -day storms that might only deposit a couple of inches, but because of the way that we have developed our society, they really cause impacts on people's day-to-day -day lives of just flooding within the streets. So if you think about some of the cumulative is impacts or the, the disproportionate impacts on black and brown communities, that black and brown communities are dis disproportionately more likely to not be as mobile as their white counterparts, not have a car, not be able to afford to, to own a car. Uh, if you're having more rain events that are flooding your streets and you're not able to uh, get to the, the, to, the, to the bus stop, um, you're not able to walk to work because you're impacted by all of the stormwater that's flooding your neighborhood. That could be literally life or death. And I'm not saying that to be mel melodramatic to the point where you lose your job. I mean, we also know that black and brown com communities, COVID-19 has shown us this, are more typically our service workers more typically people that have to clock in from day to day and do not have the luxury of being able to call out sick or, or to be able to work from home. So being impacted by climate change in a real way, or you can't make it to the bus or the bus is delayed and you can't clock in on time and then you lose your job, really impacts your um, ability to develop wealth over time and to support your family. Yeah, I, I want to stay there for a little bit because I definitely agree with like the amount of rain that we've seen in recent years, right? I feel like it was, mm -hmm. it might have been 2016, but it felt like it rained like every day in April. Um, and yeah. so it was, it was one of those things where we were like, so this, uh, you know, is while a mild inconvenience, you know, it feels like a, we're on the precipice of something different. And I know that climate change is such uh, a hugely important um, element and is, appears to be taken seriously by the incoming administration. But you mentioned that um, that part of it is like greenhouse gases and um, also uh, the way that you know our cars and essentially what we've built our life on here in America, unfortunately, can be very bad for the land around us. And so I want to um, kind of talk about what it looks like to be on the on the I guess on the receiving end of a lot of that bad, um, those bad decisions. And I'm thinking in particularly about um, when our communities, you know, have a freeway run through the middle of them, right? I'm thinking about when, um, you know, they put are they, landfills in our backyards because the same type of mobilization and organizing isn't happening. And so what the impact of the climate being neglected for generations can look like um, in the way that it impacts like our bodies as well. 
Yeah, that is a great point. I'm glad you bring up about the way that our communities have been developed over time to the point where, again, I'm going to keep using this word disproportionate. Um, black and brown communities have higher levels of asthma rates. And if you ask yourself, well, why is that the case? I mean, it's because we have dumping zones in our neighborhoods. You know, we have a disproportionate uh, location of landfills and incinerators and bus depots and highways that have literally ripped through black and brown communities to the point where we are breathing in toxic air, uh, literally. And I think that the climate justice movement has not done a good enough job or um, even a responsible job of understanding and, and seeing the intersectional connections of climate change and, and, and the natural environment and, and the fact that you know, uh, these, these, uh, our, our addiction to greenhouse gases is causing the polar ice caps to melt. And because of that, polar bears don't have um, habitat to live on, which is so important. Like as an environmentalist, I feel that and I like wanna go fight and champion that cause. But at the same time, you cannot effectively or responsibly call yourself an environmentalist and only see that as your cause to fight for and not see the people, the black and brown and indigenous communities who are suffering from it, the, the over, um, you know, the, the, the location of, of all of these really dirty and polluting practices in our neighborhoods that's affecting our quality of life um, and our health. Like it, it truly is a public health issue and it's intersectional. In the same way, you know this being my Spelman sister, that you cannot truly call yourself a feminist and only think about the issues and not think about the issues of black and brown and LGBTQ women, you know, that, that, that the intersectionality of our identities must be recognized in this movement as well. So over the years, there have been really bad, but yet intentional systemic racist decisions to overpopulate these really polluting facilities in our communities because eh, you know that you know we we don't have the mobilized power so so people think um to do anything about it and it, it ends up being our burden and our problem to deal with and and that's just you know one example of kind of in the in the urban centers but also it affects community rural communities um, specifically, I want to call attention to our indigenous brothers and sisters who live in rural communities where these big fossil fuel companies are extracting the natural resources in their backyard. And so they're having to live with and deal with the, the, the byproducts of the fracking and the digging and the drilling. And, you know, what about their air quality? And it, and, it, and it goes beyond public health. It, it's not just about the health impacts, it's also about the wealth creation and generation and the lack of access for those communities. So you're in their backyard. And, and let me just pause and, and I would be remiss, you know, not to mention the literal and, figure, and figurative 
erasure of indigenous people in this country uh, due to colonialism. So it, 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 is, it is and was their land to begin with. And now we have these big companies extracting and digging and leaving those communities with all of these nasty byproducts to have to contend with, but then they're not profiting off of the digging and the, and the extraction. They, they don't get to profit. And so how do, how do those cyclical effects just continue to, you know, have it just create this cycle of poverty and just this wealth imbalance for, for these big companies? I definitely echo um, everything about the land belonging to indigenous people to begin with and how um, colonialism has ravaged their communities in ways that are are awful. And what I um, what kept coming up as you were uh, going through the way all of these things, some like end up working together in a way was the, the interconnectedness of so many of these issues, right? That environmentalism is a healthcare yeah. issue, which is an economic issue, which is like all, which is a, it all kind of works together in an interconnectedness. And like one of the harshest elements of colonialism is the, uh, the focus on the individual and how as an individual, that's what you represent. That's solely what is cared about. What we can see in um, particularly black and brown communities in America, but also when we look at the places where we hail from globally, um, there's so much more emphasis placed on the community and so much more emphasis placed on your neighbor and the way your actions impact others. And so I definitely believe that climate change and um, environmentalism has been so much um, uh, co-opted in, in part of that. And one of the things that I, I meant to bring up earlier, well, I'm glad I just thought of now, was um, the in individual responsibility element of environmentalism. I know that there's a mm -hmm. lot of tension between um, what we call, you know, it's like, oh, is it that I should recycle or is it that corporations should have their, um, you know, greenhouse gases or carbon emissions uh, uh, what's the word I would use? Um, be restricted or yeah, restricted. Yeah. Um, and so, what what has been your experience with that, either in the work you do or just in your activism thus far? Yeah, good question. Um, I think that individual activism, you know, recycling when you can and using metal straws and doing all the things. Right? You can Google like, how do I be sustainable? Or how do I go green? Is great, but it's only one piece of the puzzle and the burden cannot fall on the people, especially black and brown people. I'm gonna keep coming back to it because I think that there's an opportunity due to and because of racism to always have us be the scapegoat, but I'll stay off that tangent for a minute. But I, I think that individual actions are great, but only a piece of the puzzle. And we, you, can, you cannot put the burden on the people um, to solve everything, especially when they're in these big corporations that are getting off of the hook. So I think it really has to be uh, government solutions and actions to restrict, uh, you know, the, 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 the way and the amount that these polluters can pollute. But one, one, one thing that I also wanna say about individualism versus the collective good. You know, I was watching a TED talk the other day and um, a climate activist was telling her story. She happens to be a white woman, telling her story about how she organized and mobilized a bunch of protesters, right? And they got into their kayaks and they 
went out into the ocean and literally physically blocked the drilling. Like there's some, some big company, right? Was gonna be drilling into the ocean. Um, I assume to try to find oil and um, build an oil rig. And so she mobilized people. She got the kayaks out there and they surrounded and blocked it. And I thought that is fantastic. Like, wow, like she really did that. Like she used her power, her influence to mobilize people. But in that same instance, I also thought, one, I didn't see any people of color. I didn't see a black woman out on that ocean in a kayak. <laughs> and then it made me think, well, why is that? And, and then I started to think about the, the relationship between black people and water and this myth, or maybe not so much of a myth that we don't like water, we don't like to swim. And then I started to think about, you know, the relationship, the history of, of Jim Crow and the fact that we weren't allowed to swim, to swim in public swimming pools. We were banned, <laughs> we were seg segregated against. And so there's, there's all of these like little, tangents that play into a bigger conversation about how I show up as a black woman calling myself an environmentalist. Would that, could that have been me that was in that kayak? But what are the, the, the barriers to, to access to be that type of organizer, you know? And, you know, it made me also think about just the, the wealth gap and the opportunities, the access. To, to even buy a kayak, to even be able to take off work and show up at this protest. That I, you know, I'm making a lot of assumptions here about what those people who were in the kayaks do. But ultimately, just kind of circling back to the main point I want to give with this example is how how much can we all get done together? If all of those kayaks, let's say it was like a thousand of them, if all those kayaks showed up in Detroit or showed up in Philly, or Newark, or Camden, or Trenton, or Baltimore, I, I could go on, right? Who showed up in Harlem and really fought for the communities that are struggling with and fighting against all of these polluters. And it's not to pit one movement against each other. It is to suggest that without all of us working together to co-create the solutions to really fight against climate change. There's no one way to fight against climate change, but what I do know is that the traditional or the mainstream way that we've been fighting against climate change is not good enough and it won't it won't do. Like how much more good work could we get done if we all partnered together and we started to center people and the most vulnerable people in the conversation? I definitely agree with you there. And it's so interesting because what I was thinking, um, one, when like the, the, the organizing in the kayaks and I agree, right? That's, that's amazing. I'm glad they were able to do that. Um, I also think that so much of who we are as people impacts our activism, right? So I'll be honest, like, um, I, I don't know that I ever would have thought of kayaks to physically block because one, as a black woman, me putting my body on the line does not always yield the same um, 
results than it does when the majority puts their body on the line, right? And so mm -hmm. I'm very cautious of that. And as a leader, I don't ask anything that I don't want my, I don't ask my followers to do anything that I wouldn't do, right? So my thing is, I don't want to put my body on the line, so I'm not going to yeah. ask you to put your body on the line. Um, and so I think that it's, it's great that she showed up for herself in that way, but we can still acknowledge the privilege that comes with that and why she was able to have that happen. I also think that um, you're absolutely right that the showing up in like, what would it look like for y'all to take that same energy? Cause again, I, I have not seen this Ted talk, so I don't know how long it took her. I don't know if this, you yeah. Know, and I'm making some assumptions here, but right. yeah, and so all, all of that's fine. And so the idea of taking that into whatever space, um, you know, the, I don't, I don't know what like momentum on something like that looks like, right. If that's a one-off, if that's a something she was able to sustain, but I do think there is room to say that, people um, unfortunately tend to care about issues that show up um, in their backyard. So I'm assuming she had some type of tie to this ocean, I'm assuming, or this area of the ocean, the ocean is quite large. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the idea that she didn't want this oil rig to go up for some very specific reason. And so um, circling back so much of uh, even what I have enjoyed in the environmentalism piece of the policy conversation is there is no delusion that, the, that even America will be able to do this on its own, right? Like the Paris Climate Accord, it's like we're going to have to all come together because the earth like belongs to all of us in that way. But I mean, similarly to the conversation we were just having, if we wanted to transition into um, I Ain't Sorry, I noticed in another piece that I read on you that so much of, well, that you consider part of your activism to be a black woman and show up for other um, black women in this space as an environmentalist. And so um, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about why that matters to you and what it looks like for you to show up um, for other black women. Yeah. Um before I get into answering that, because um, I can talk about black women all day, every day, it's like I light up and it, it's something that I enjoy and it's close to my heart, obviously, because I am a black woman. Um, but I, I do want to acknowledge, and I did this a little bit earlier, but you know, the, the environmental racism that our black, that our brown brothers and sisters face also, and just, you know, acknowledging that struggle, especially our indigenous brothers and sisters that I, that I mentioned earlier, but you know, also our Latinx brothers and sisters. I mean, just look at Puerto Rico and the devastation um, done by Hurricane Maria and the fact that many of those communities are still struggling with getting consistent power years later after that hurricane and recognizing that island nations, you know, thinking on a global level, island nations uh, typically don't uh, contribute to the, the same level of greenhouse gases that India and China, United States, Canada do, but they bear the biggest bur burden of sea level rise and, and you know, hurricanes and that those island nations mostly being, you know, nations of color. Um, so, so just to acknowledge that they are also struggling with environmental racism, but today we're talking about black women because I am a black woman and I'm just speaking to what I know and who I am. Um, and that's just typically the way that I frame, I frame issues. So if you hear me ever talk, I'm, I'm always talking about it in terms of black, blackness, but you know, not ever erasing or acknowledging that there are other communities of color who also contend with 
uh, environmental racism. But jumping into the heart of your question about why I advocate so hard for Black women and why we need to be included in the environmental movement. I mean, there's so many benefits of diversity. I think that that is a hot topic and I hope that people are thinking about it authentically, really trying to racially diversify their organizations um, as much as they can. You know, I encourage listeners, if you're curious to explore uh, the theory in, uh, of diversity to read and Google um, Harvard, Harvard Business Review. They have a lot of art articles kind of explaining and outlining all of the benefits of diversity. Um, I won't go down that path because I think it's generally known that if we collaborate and have more uh, voices at the table, that we can create better solutions and do more work together is generally the, the premise. But let me just be super, super frank here and talk about the specific importance of Black women and use a very super, like a, a recent example in our recent history and memory that we don't have to go too far. And I want to highlight our Spelman sister, Stacey Abrams, who politically uh, put herself on the line, her, her political viability on the line to do the work to get out the vote, to get out the Black vote, um, the relentless vote, at work of turning out the Black vote and really fighting against voter suppression and turning Georgia blue, um, or maybe I should say not turning Georgia blue or helping Georgia to see its true colors, which maybe was always blue, but because of voter suppression, couldn't quite get there, right? Um, I want to highlight and uplift the Black women across the country in Detroit, in Milwaukee, in Philadelphia, in Atlanta, who stood together and voted as a monolith to save this country, literally, without melodrama, to save this country from another four years of a president who incited an insurrection at our Capitol building. It, it is, and, it, and it's not because we as Black people or as Black women are a monolith, it's because we don't have the privilege to voice our individual political opinions. We know that it is life or death and that we have to band together to show up for our country, even though our country rarely shows up for us. And it is, it is that fight, it's that grit, it's being you know, undaunted by the fight that we continue to, to give of ourselves time and time again, movement after movement after movement, cause after cause after cause. We need Black women. We need people who are willing to give tirelessly of themselves for, for, for good, <laughs> for the sake of the good. And I think for a topic that, as it, that is as important as climate change and climate justice and really making sure that we don't miss this window, like the, the clock is ticking, right? The, the clock, this climate change clock is, is ticking and we are seeing in real time the effects of climate change uh, with all of these hurricanes, I'm just using that as example because it's you know in people's memory and it's easy to, easy to connect to. You see it on the news, but there's so many other effects. We need Black women to help solve these issues, 
and to only involve the mainstream uh, identities that have historically been included in this movement and exclude all of the intersectional identities is a mistake. It, it, is, it is the experiences of those intersectional identities that really help to add and augment and protect and save and, and create really creative solutions. And we just have to be honest with ourselves that by only having a small subset of voices determine the outcomes and the land use decisions and the environmental agenda and the the, the restrictions for everyone, you know, to, to, to create the solutions for the whole problem, that's a mistake. And so that's why I fight so hard for, for Black women is because we need us, just period. Completely. Um... Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting, right? So what one what's what's jumping out to me is the age old, you know, saying like if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, right? And so like when we know that um, when we're not a part of the conversation, that's part of how we end up in the spaces we're in, um, and who advocates for our communities better than us. Um, and so I definitely agree as far as Black women being a huge part of the environmental conversation. But I also think it's important, like, to acknowledge, and I'm again I'm thinking politically, like. Whenever we have conversations with um, legislators or candidates about what the Black community needs, because again, we're all lumped in as one, unfortunately, this doesn't come up. And something that I've really been trying to be intentional about, particularly in this show, is acknowledging that like we are intersectional individuals. So like, yes, as Black people, we care about criminal justice reform and um, uh, essential programming, but we also care about healthcare and the environment and education and all these other things that still impact our lives in, in so many important ways. And uh, the second thing that came up for me as you were speaking is Little Miss Flint, um, Mari Kopany in Michigan, who has been advocating for her community, particularly in regards to water, since she appeared to be somewhere around between the age of like eight and 10. Like she appeared to be very small um advocating and is still advocating because as we know um they they have not had a resolution there um but this idea that for this young girl like her community and her her early years are taken up with this advocacy um in a way that while i'm exceptionally proud of her and i think she's done an amazing job i also wonder what it would be like if she could just be a kid if she could just go out and play and yeah. do what she's supposed to do yeah, that that's a good point. It it's it makes me think of something I've been thinking of lately is that, you know, black people are out there fighting for the environment. You just named an example. And the the black people that you typically see aren't the polar bear advocates. You know, we we don't, we don't typically have the luxury of uh fighting for coral reefs you know, to, to not die and, and, and to bloom. Um, we, we don't have that luxury. Usually when you see us in the environmental movement, either by choice or by this like microaggressive, like just assumption, right? We are usually the environmental justice advocates. We are usually the community organizers. We are usually on the front line. Typically are we the like white suits 
And I think that that is problematic as well, because one, I mean, we're all individuals. So just because I'm black doesn't mean that I have the expertise or the skill set or even the desire to be on the ground in the community fighting. Right. But like society doesn't always give us that choice. We, We don't have that privilege. Sometimes we have to do the things that might not necessarily be our skill set or our personality, because again, it's life or death. These disproportionate impacts. I mean, we're seeing it with COVID-19. We're, we're seeing it with asthma rates. It, 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 um, it, it truly affects our day-to-day existence. And so we have to stand up and not wait for people to figure out the solution for us, but we just have to get it done ourselves. And, and isn't that, unfortunately, <laughs> the life of, of Black women in so many ways? And I think um, it's it's been interesting to see uh, the, the rhetoric around Black women um, has shifted, honestly, since 2016, right? But it's still in this very not quite humanizing way. It's it's like you're either the bottom or you're a superhero, right? Like there's no room to just yeah. be. There's no room to just be, to just be common. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. and it's, it's unfortunate. And so I think um, I, I, what I've enjoyed about a lot of my peers, um, it seems like as we get into like our late twenties, early thirties is a desire to take care of ourselves. Um, because I do feel like so much emphasis early on is, you know, placed on essentially going as hard as you can and doing as much as you can. And if you, you know, rest, you had to be earned. And it's like, actually, no, like I'm a whole person. I can take care of myself. And so even like a lot of the rhetoric around black women being heroes or being about to save the country, I'm like, dude, that's a lot. Like, can I just, you know, can I go home? Um, can I go to work, come home, watch Netflix and be a, a regular person? <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, <laughs> no, you can't is what society would say back to that. No, you can't. And, it's yeah. and, and, and I mean, a lot of that is built into who we are over the years, passed down generationally. And, and we're not able to complain, you know, like we, we, I think a lot of us, know know this like oh i have to be like superwoman right but like also like so society requires that of us but then society also doesn't let us complain about it or like you know really do anything about it so you have to show up every day at work even though there's protests in the street yeah you have to show up every day at work even though such and such is happening like you you just you just do and so true justice i think means when we can just be free to just show up in the way that we choose and just be a regular human being (laughs) it sounds kind of funny to say it like that but i think black sisters listening will relate yeah i i definitely think they will um and out of curiosity just as a, a bio point of sorts what drew you to environmentalism um, I mean, I know that you did it at Spelman as well. So it seems like it's something that's just like been in you for a long time. Yeah, it really has. I've been reflecting on this a lot lately. Um, yeah, what kind of drew me in? I think just as a personality trait, I see the world in right and wrong, black and white a lot of the time. 
And I have this inner like drive to right wrongs. And so I think I'm just like naturally suited to like this justice type of movement. And early on as a child, really connected to this idea of like deforestation and people polluting our world. I'm like, oh, that's wrong. Somebody's got to do something about it. And then it just over the years, why not me? Like, why not me be the one that tries to do something about it and just kind of connected that um, as my life's mission and my life's passion. And, and as I've matriculated and, you know, become an expert in my field, I've become to notice like, wow, this field is very overly dominated by white men. Um, I'd say white men when it comes to leadership positions. There's a lot of white women in the environmental field as well. Um, maybe not so much in kind of the executive level positions, mostly dominated by male, as is many other industries, not not just the environment. But you know, it wasn't until I got in deep into this thing where this mission of connecting, like, whoa, 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 we we've got to we've got to shake this thing up and diversify the table and get more people and more voices um, having the same conversations that I'm having. It wasn't until I got pretty deep where I saw that and connected like, whoa, this has got to switch up and I can use my power and my influence to help to do that. Um, So I'm born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. I live in Philadelphia, both black cities. We both went to Spelman, historically black college. So you are in a little bit, you know, I was kind of growing up in this bubble of blackness of blackness um and i'm studying these topics in college but then when i get to my master's program and then i get to the next step and the next step and the next step it becomes more white and more white and more white and yeah that it's it's got to change and and it's not to dismiss the great white brothers and sisters who are doing it for the environment is to just and only say that we can only go so far with just one set of people and we need everybody to tackle this really huge like climate change is such a complex problem so complex i mean when i mentioned earlier about the clock is ticking it literally is like 100 years from now some of the cities that we know and love and live and vacation may not be those same cities. They, they may look a lot different because of sea level rise. Like we've got to do something in time to act is now. And we have to figure out these solutions, but not just with one set of people. Yeah, I'll just I'll just say this briefly. Um, one of my favorite, favorite things about Spelman is there's never the phrase black women don't do that. Black girls don't do that. So whatever you want to do, we have a group of black women who do it. And yeah. so whether that's you want to be on the robotics team, you want to be on the mock trial team, you want to do whatever, like we've got a team of black women who do that. And so I think it, uh, for me also entering, like getting my master's and moving forward, like I don't know that coming straight from high school into my master's, I would have questioned the demographics of the school in the same way. But after four years, right. of school, it felt like this complete, like, whoa, where are are those the people who look like me? Um, yeah, where are where where are we? <laughs> um, so I definitely agree with you there.
as we kind of transition into our final segment, I want to give you an opportunity to offer any final thoughts, um, either on the uh, environmentalism as, as a movement on climate justice, or if you have some type of call to action that you think would be helpful for our communities, um, open to kind of just the floor is yours for, for the last bit. Yeah, thanks, Lauren. Uh, I guess I'll just end by acknowledging and uh, say that I'm really encouraged and motivated by the predominantly people of color led movements and organizations who are on the ground mobilizing, advocating, putting their lives, uh, you know, literal bodies on the line for the, for the climate change, climate justice, environmental justice movements. Um, you know, no longer can we let only one set of people speak for us or wait for solutions to magically appear. We have to partner with everyone to create them. Um, so I just want to acknowledge you, say that I see you, and thank you uh, for using your voice and your strengths and talents to fight for the environment. Um, but also, I want to speak directly to any of my Black brothers and sisters who are listening, especially if you are a young person, maybe trying to figure out uh, your career move and, and what you do. Um, you may have never had a invitation into the environmental sector, maybe thought about it as a career path. Um, but from a Black sister, I want to personally extend an invitation uh, to my Black brothers and sisters to consider joining me professionally, join me in this professional fight to solve these huge climate change issues. We need you, we need your identities, your experiences, your voices. And um, I would like to see more of us in the field. So please join me and consider uh, the environment as a career path. and. Um, just to say that it can look different, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, on the ground advocacy. It doesn't have to be um, fighting for, for the protection of, let's say, endangered animals or um, natural lands protection. It, it can look like a lot of different things and you can use your creativity and your swagger um, to work with companies to help them reduce the amount of waste generating from their factories. For example, I'm just throwing that out there, but it, it, it can be a lot of different ways that you enter into this space. And all you have to think about is, you know, what is your passion and just kind of apply an environmental lens onto it. What am I passionate about? What am I good at? And how can I do that, but do it in a way that respects and protects the environment? So just to throw that out there to seed it for anybody that's listening, but I really invite you to uh, join me, join me in this fight. Powerful words. Um, I appreciate so much to one, um, you're coming on here. So I wanted someone to do environmentalism for a long time. And so I, I really appreciate that we got to connect in this way. I yeah, also, thanks for having me. Girl, like this has been everything. <laughs> I'm really uh, excited. And what I want to just kind of say, like, as my, as my final wrap up is that, uh, I want to kind of, I guess, like 
look at Generation Z. So I did a, a talk recently to a group of teenagers about just different political policy things. But what struck me um, is that for a lot of uh, policy problems, because our legislators skew older, the reaction is to kick the can down the road, right? Because mm -hmm. if I'm 65 and this isn't going to be a problem for another 20 years, then I, it's not going to be my problem is what it looks like. Right. Um, and so I really encourage um, those of us who are invested in these programs or, or invested in these ideas and are young to, to go ahead and take them on in their complexity and understanding that, you know, there's not going to be one right answer, um, but it's not going to come from the top down. And so I encourage a lot of people um, and similarly what Candace said, like climate change is a real and ever present issue. I recently found out about the climate clock in New York City um, that uh, is counting down and is, I think last month that it was like seven or eight years. And I was like, that is close. That is, <laughs> that is very much within. Yeah. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, like this, this isn't something that is going to go away. It's gonna take consistent, persistent, intentional effort in order to course correct. And so we uh, just, we have to be on that. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I want to, want to leave it. Uh, Candace, again, thank you so much for coming in the event. People wanted to reach out to you or, you know, ask you questions or probe further. How, what's the best way they do that? Yeah, I think the best way is on LinkedIn. So Candace Perry, that's Candace with a K and a Y, K-A-N-D-Y-C-E. Uh, yeah, message me on LinkedIn. Sounds good. If you don't mind, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up here. You just finished this episode of Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered with host Lauren Zayu and music by Lighthouse Productions. If you want to learn more about the show, follow at Lauren Zayu on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find more episodes on Facebook and Instagram at Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered. Thanks for listening.